0: Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, our guest is Rupak Venkatakrishnan, who joins us from sunny California. Rupak is currently an engineering manager at Bolt.com. Venkata Krishnan, welcome to maintainable.
1: Hey Robbie, thank
0: you for having me. It's great to be here today. I'm so excited to get to dig into some of these topics with you today. So, first off, like I ask most people that join us, given your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software code?
1: Yeah, so you know, I, I thought about this uh, when I was like, you know, preparing to talk to you and like the, the, the things that I, you know, finally boiled it down to, because I felt like, you know, they were there, they were like, they were not things that I had actively thought about. But when I thought about them, it came down to like four high level areas, right? Simple, keeping it up to date, documenting weird things, and easy to develop. I'm going to get into each of the, uh, each of the things and then, you know, we'll go from there. So when I say simple is like, you know, don't build what you don't really need plan ahead, right? Like think if you're building something, think, you know, a year out, two years out, but make sure the system is extendable, but don't really build things that you don't need because you're going to start maintaining them. And somewhere along the way, you know, your plans might change and you would have built what you don't need. I think a lot of people like want to accommodate the future and they build non-simple systems. Keeping dependencies up to date, I think is a really big one. Open source libraries, everybody's using them, especially if you're doing anything front end, you have a bunch of NPM libraries. Um, Same goes for, you know, we use Golang at Bolt and, you know, same goes there. So you've got to keep uh, your libraries up to date. And if you're trying to bump like 15 versions all at once, you're just going to have a lot of problems. And let's face it, um, every code base has weird things. And I think it's better to document the weird solutions and why you got to those weird solutions right there in the code so that someone can go back and look at it there are many times when you know i find something i'm like oh my god this looks so weird and we should fix it and then i go back and then you know it doesn't work i spend hours on it and i go back and i find out that you know someone had already been down this rabbit hole um could have been better and, and the last part is like easy to develop like making it easy for anybody to jump in and then start extending and expanding or building features on the code base so these are what i think uh of maintainable software
0: you mentioned that you know that first one when it comes to being simple, and I think it's it's always interesting. Like, what does simple mean, right? And I think it kind of speaks to the the, the other one of being easy to develop with, right? And you know, early on in a lot of projects, uh, there's probably a lot of ambitious people, and ex- they're excited about this thing they're getting to work on. So you're you don't want to p- put put yourself in a corner where you know paint yourself in a corner where you're like, okay, well let's not worry about those things too far down the road, but there's also this fear of, you know, pre-optimizing, uh, you know, like, well, we're going to be scaling like crazy and things like that in the next few years. So we need to put these things in place. How do you, if you hadn't had that experience of going through that and maybe over, uh, for lack of a better term off the top of my head, like over-engineering uh, maybe prematurely and needing to then scale things back later down the road, or, or almost like maybe the opposite of like under, preparing for what was about to come and what's been your take over the years because i know you worked at a lot of different organizations and that have had large scaling challenge things that i'm sure there was i'm assuming that there was some large scaling cha- challenges at some point or another but what's been your experience there on like how to get that kind of find a happy medium there
1: yeah, I, I think like, it's very difficult, because I'm going to say a couple of things. And you know what, two years down the line, I might like change my mind, uh, because I I've, I've, I've found that this has happened before. But uh, right now, sort of what I find has been working for me so far is, um, there are things that are like, you know, your data models are going to be really hard to change, right? Especially, like, let's say you're starting with something completely new, your data models are the fundamentals of your business, and you're going to build a lot of things around these. That's where you want to take your time, build something that, you know, you can extend upon, right? But let's say you're building a service and you're going to have an endpoint. There's no, like, don't don't add a bunch of caching. Don't, do, don't try and get there just yet. You don't know what endpoints. Like, that is the part where I would say you don't need to optimize super early, right? So it, it's a little bit of, like, you know, finding out sort of what you're not going to need, even in the terms of data models. Recently, I was working with, uh, you know, an engineer on my team, and we were like, hey, Um, If we add this, a bunch of complexity comes up in the way we do some exports and some joins for ML models, and then the question is, how, how long would it take to do a backfill and then sort of change the data model to be a little bit more complicated? And it turns out it's only like, you know, it's not that complicated. Would take about a week of work and it's like not that hard. Um, it was an asynchronous framework. And how much extra work do we think we would take to support this data model and whether it's actually going to benefit us in any way? It turns out that for a while, though we had a bunch of ideas, for a while we don't see us ourselves doing it and not having it is just going to make "Quote unquote, development easier, lesser things to worry about as you develop." So we decided not to touch that thing, not to do it right now. So I think it's a little bit of played by the ear. Um, I don't, I don't think that that's the answer you wanted to hear. But you know, that's uh, <laughs> that's
0: uh... well, it's it's very common to contextualize that around you. Like you know, it's always it depends on the situation, right? And you learn from that over over a period of time, and you make hopefully smarter decisions as you go forward, as you learn from those past ones. And even, I think admittedly, you might make decisions now based off of you know, 10, 15, 20 years of experience in the industry, and you're probably not going to get it right every time still. So I think that that's, that's okay. I think if, if anything, it's like anticipate that you might get some things maybe inaccurate. It's a kind of early on guess guessing game to some degree. Um, and I think if you have more people involved in making those decisions, that's also helpful. I think it's kind of what you're speaking to there. So what are some technical hurdles that you face when you've been inheriting new to you software projects?
1: I think, you know, um, this is going to go back to document the sort of weird things, right? So my team has been recently taking over uh, infrastructure at Bolton. Like, this is, like, one of the things where we took over, um, like, a lot of infrastructure because the company has been around a little bit. And, um, you know, we're we're trying to go around and figure out why certain decisions were made And, you know, it turns out that, like, at the time, those decisions were pretty logical based on the tools, the software, whatever was allowed, or various different edge cases built into, you know, on the infrastructure side, you're building for edge cases not on the infrastructure, but also in the code that some developers might have done, and it was easier to move forward faster. And understanding what is, like, you know, what was done and why was it done uh, was sort of, like, one of the harder things. And the other, uh, thing that I, um, I mean, I, am sure people talk about this a lot is, is, you know, the bus factor. If only one person understands one thing, like forget, like, you know, inheriting a piece of software or anything. There are, there are some, some, times when, you know, someone understands a system very, very well and you know what, they go on vacation and suddenly it feels like it's unmaintainable. Really it's not, but you know, that's sort of where, where it feels like you've ended up. So, uh, I think, Right now that's uh, one of the things that has been on top of my mind because there are some systems where you know I feel like, oh, you know, I have knowledge or someone else on my team has knowledge. And uh what do you think contributes to that type of
0: scenario where you end up with it's almost like I think in one way we can call them like, oh, they're a specialist for that particular part of the of you know your infrastructure system platform. And then there's another part of it, it's like, you know, I always think of those as being like these weird silos of information, uh, of, of knowledge, and there's that fear. You know, you mentioned the bus factor, then I you know you went on to a nice good example of them going on vacation, but if they got hit by a bus and you're like, oh, shit, what happens now? And that, that, that's a fear. You know, I talk to different teams quite often where they're like, you know, someone's leaving and they've been here for 15 years and all that information that's in their head that we're not going to be able to extract because we know that as much as they say they're going to document as much as they can before they leave, well, people use the documentation. Will they? You know, it's all those like weird contextual things that get lost, right? As people come and go from projects, and that becomes really difficult. But like in like a normal environment where like say someone's not leaving, but the silos still happen, right? And so you kind of touched on sounding like maybe you're even guilty of it to some degree yourself. What what is it about? The type of work that you're working on that you're like, oh, I'll protect this in a way or I'll take care of this until it's ready for other people to really get introduced because it's maybe half baked or I'm making some assumptions based off of my own personal experience because I know there's a few systems that I know really well that my team doesn't. And I'm like, oh, no, like I hope they don't. I hope it is. I hope this doesn't break when I'm on vacation
1: yeah so uh I'll actually get into like one of the things that I know i'm uh, like like you alluded to that I'm guilty of, and then you know we'll sort of go from there I, I think at least at a startup uh what ends up happening is that there are a few people there are a lot of things to do right, and invariably it is not even that um you know you want to protect a system or something like that. it's a little bit about you know let's keep moving faster and so Generally, um, so the the system that I'm particularly I was particularly talking about is our CI pipelines, right? Now, of course, you know after a point when I started realizing that you know what was happening, I started pushing for more people to pick it up, and there are some some people who've picked up quite a bit of it. There are some nuances which I still need to like get out. In fact, like literally an hour ago, I gave a one-on-one seminar where I talked to the entire team about how our build pipelines are set up. It seems fairly simple, but our build pipelines have now become fairly complex. We do a lot of things there, and it started out by, you know, me being like, I'll optimize this, I'll optimize this. And, you know, one optimization on top of the other over a bunch of time It's great because people are immediately like, oh, the build is faster. It's like much quicker. You know, as soon as we commit, we're able to see our tests or, you know, be ready. And so, you know, nobody really worries. It's not even a live system, which is the other part of it. If it's a live system, there's a lot more reviews. But when it became a non-live system, people are a little more happy to click on approve. You know, I'm guilty of that too. And and that's sort of where I think uh, one of the things that we've been trying to do on my team is try and make sure you buddy someone up and make sure that you know, like, if one person is building a system, someone else is also like reviewing that code and thinking about it, and sort of has some context into it. In some places, we're going retroactively and making other people ramp up. Um, we have uh, one of the engineers on my team who's great with databases. He's like really amazing, and you know, if 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 he went on vacation, um, you know, I really hope the database doesn't blow up at that time. But you know, we have another engineer who's working with him right now, uh, so. I think it's a little bit of pairing people up. And another part of it is also like reviews, um, which I think like when you're taking reviews for these systems, don't just pass them around to the quickest people. I'm, I'm very guilty of this. I'll just be like, hey, I just want to get this thing in. That guy's online. I'm pretty sure he's going to approve my change because it's not a live system. I'll just pass it on to him. It's approved and it's gone in. And, you know, it's good for some people to have context and make those people continuously have context of the, uh, of the things that you're sort of changing. I guess that's also hard, but, you know, I I think it helps with the bus factor thing.
0: Do you spend 100% of your time contributing code or is your role at the moment a little bit like that's actually a much smaller amount of time for you?
1: Uh, A much smaller amount of time. I manage a team and I contribute when I I notice something and I'm like, oh, I want to do this or, you know, I'm itching to code. Like on the weekend, I feel like, oh, I haven't, like, you know, done something. Then, you know, I jump into it. So that, that, that's what I was
0: assuming based off of the the way you phrased that. And the thing, it, it, as you were talking about that, I was thinking, I do that where I'll have this, like, short window of time when I'm like, ooh, I'll contribute that thing, and I want to kind of, like, get it wrapped up and done and pushed away, push it out, deploy it, whatever, just so that I can move on to the rest of my things because I know that if, like, oh, if this doesn't get closed right now, I don't know when I'm going to build If someone has feedback in the PR you know, and they can get to it really quickly, then it might be several days or a week before they, you know, might come back my way for whatever reason. And I'll be like, I might not be, have the mental capacity to dive back into this, do the context switch, and then get this pushed out again then. So I'm kind of like a quick move, quick and run over somewhere else type of person. And so I noticed that I start to do that where I'll be like, Ooh, if I send it to that person and I ask them, Hey, can you quickly review this? emphasis on quickly, I'm not actually looking for a super thorough review. I'm just like, can you just please put a thumbs up on this so that we at least said that we followed the process because I have some other things I need to get to.
1: But does that resonate at all? (laughs) Uh, It definitely does resonate. I think like for me, it's a little bit more around, I'll just send it to anyone who's online to get a review. And this is where I tie back to now I just sent it to any one person. They may not even be on my team. And, you know, that change on its own is good. So that person understands it. The other day, they'll be like, oh, you know, Rupak made that change. And I'll be like, great. But now the other person who I actually want to like look at all of the the things that are going into the CI system, maybe does not. And that's where, you know, I feel like I'm doing a bad job. What do you think people often mislabel as technical debt? Okay, I'll I'll tell you what I think is mislabeled as tech debt. Now, this may not be the case for a lot of other people, because I know that uh, people feel strongly about this. But for me, it is anything that is an improvement or a performance improvement, none of that is really tech debt for like the way I think about tech debt is something that is stopping the team from going faster uh, or building faster, something that is like crippling the reliability or, you know, availability of services or something that, you know, everyone knows that we should change. And it's like, it's outgrown. Like, you know, like generally the way we do software is that nobody wants to rewrite anything from scratch. We're just going to add patches. And you know that at some point, the number of patches on top of something just means that we need to rethink this thing holistically and rewrite that piece of code. So when everybody comes to the point when, hey, this thing needs to be thought of and rewritten again, just because of, you know, various different things, I call that, I I would count that as sort of tech debt.
0: How does your team go about, you know, you mentioned that you're kind of, Dealing with a large pile of technical debt over the years, and how is your team? How does your team, actually, like on a kind of process level, organize and prioritize that type of work and, and divvy it up? Like, does it just someone says I'm going to take care of it and does it, or what? What What is your team currently doing to to kind of organize that?
1: Yeah, so I think our the way our team sort of organizes projects is basically we have a giant backlog. And you know we, we go about it uh, once in a while, looking through the backlog and like um, right, you know pulling things that we need uh, we think need to be done at the top, and we also look at how impactful will they be to the rest of the team, right? Um, so tech debt somewhere falls along this. So you know on one of these things we have this very archaic dependency injection framework in Go, and the way that we've set it up. Um, Like it was set up a while ago, and you know we've been like working on getting you know rid of it or slash slash modify not entirely getting rid of it but sort of modifying it, and you know now we're at a point where we realize that if we get rid of it, it's going to open up a lot of new doors, and so that just automatically gets pushed up to the top. There's uh, another thing where you know, we were migrating from one type of Kubernetes cluster to another. And then we realized the amount of doorways it it would open up. So we push it to the top. And then there's, of course, you know, engineers sometimes uh, like they see something that annoys them and, you know, they're going to wait a little bit. But at some point, they're just going to be like, okay, it's got to be done. And that's the thing where they're just like take a bit of time, they just go in and they're like, we're done. We're not going to deal with this thing anymore. And um, they clean it up. So it's mostly like, you know, we we organize our project, like projects to see, you know, how much impact are they going to have? And invariably, if we feel some tech that can be solved as part of doing, you know, building some other feature or something that we're looking at, we try and put them together just to make sure that they get done. Otherwise, they're just always going to be there and then never sort of get done. It's, you know, even the big the, the quote unquote big tasks, they're done a lot you know a lot more easier and sooner. It's the it's the tiny one offs that are the ones that you know stay on the pile and never go. You know, small impact, small amount of tech debt. It just kind of stays there until one day someone looks at it um, and decides to pick it up.
0: You know, early on, you know, you mentioned like the four traits of well maintained software, and you you know, you touched a little bit on the uh, easy to develop, and I wanted to dig into that topic with you quite a bit more and. And I think there's a certain level around, you know, I know that in particular you you put a lot of emphasis on your team with in terms of about developer productivity when it comes to, say, the context of a local development environment. So, like, your laptop, computer, you know, whatever that might be. You know, as systems are growing in a lot of organizations across multiple platforms and different services and potentially different languages and things kind of running in parallel and things are a lot of interdependent systems that need to be working in some way so you can even run the like whatever the code base that you're working on. Uh, What's been your experience on how to like, make that more streamlined for people so that for those that aren't like, say, working just off of a monolithic, you know, type of app?
1: Yeah, so so uh, very interestingly, this is one of the problems that we're tackling right now. Uh, So, you know, we're not one monolithic app uh, at Bolt. We have a bunch of services, but, you know, um, we're trying to make it easier to spin up uh, more services. and. As people spin up more services, sort of like the quote-unquote local development thing that I, you know, I've been, you know, I push uh, a lot of emphasis on it. I think it's just going to generally become harder. But some of the interesting things that I've seen at either other companies I've worked before or, you know, online or that I've been experimenting with just generally, like nowadays, you know, a lot of your backend services run on Kubernetes and, you know, there are a variety of solutions where, You can either bring up up a cluster or bring up, you know, one dev cluster and give people namespaces to run services. And you can point them to various other different services, um, including databases. And, like, I've been sort of experimenting slash toying with the idea. So far um, at Bolt, what we've uh, usually done is, like, get everything running with a local process manager that just runs all your services and they they all talk to sort of one another. And uh, one other thing that we've also done is, like, this Terraform script that if you put your name in, it will generate a box for you and EC2 and you know it uses like a like a bunch of authentication systems and once you get into it, all the services like you know one kind of service is ready to develop. But um, I think at the end of the day, like as you get more services, what, what I would like to do is build sort of a plug and play mechanism where you're able to say, hey, here are a bunch of front ends and here's this one backend. I want you to swap out this one backend for my back end instead. Now That's going to work well for all kinds of synchronous API calls, because you can just say, hey, anytime you want to call auth, instead of calling anything else, call, you know, Rupax auth service instead of calling a normal auth service. Where it's going to become a little bit harder is going to be these asynchronous things, like what happens to things in queues, or, you know, what happens to anything which is reading off, like, you know, we have some Redis queues and we have like various other things. The asynchronous things are where it's going to become harder. And I, I think my answer or solution to that is like for an asynchronous system, if you're able to test its inputs and its outputs very well um, and test all the cases, I think you should be a little comfortable then pushing it to staging and then running, it, uh, running more tests there. Now, Maybe there is a better way to 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 work with asynchronous things, but I think the synchronous things are are where, um, you know, usually there's a lot more of, like, does this exactly work, especially when it's front-end, back-end communication sort of thing.
0: I'm thinking, you know, because you're working, you know, on in the infrastructure side of things, and I come from a world of, you know, primarily working with, like, Ruby on Rails type applications, and running things locally was always been fairly simple. Like I always think about like, Oh, like I would always like fast forward, you go back five, 10 years ago. If an employee is like, Oh, my internet's out and then they're at home or something. I'm like, well, you can still work on the app, right? Like it's all local on your machine. But now we live in this world where we're like, well, we need to connect to these different services all the time. And there's all the, you know, outside of just third party systems, you know, platforms that like used to be just the APIs, but now it's like, there's a lot of internal APIs basically. And, like how much testing do you do within each individual service against those other services where like where you don't actually need them to be running necessarily say to run your test suite or something or to test through things? Or do you have ways of simulating that without actually requiring communicating with a real
1: running a service elsewhere? I think this is like uh, one of the interesting things. I, I think we came up with a solution that I kind of like at this point. Maybe there are better solutions, but we'll, like we integrate with a lot of various different systems, especially external ones where it's sort of tough to test. And so, so what we've done is as you integrate a system, we build sort of what we call a live and a fake So, like, I'm not on the financial products team, and the financial products team might work with, you know, a bunch of processors or whatever. So all of them would have the credentials and everything to talk to one of these financial, like, you know, the dev version of the financial product service, and they would turn them all into the live thing, just based on, like, you know, end variables, so that it's, like, quickly be like, oh, turn on this gateway, let's test out the flow looks. For me, it's just gonna be a fake. And the fake is just always like, you know, it's a hard-coded response, which is enough for me because I don't, I'm not really working on that piece. I'm working on something else. So we have the ability to toggle various, you know, third-party services between lives and fakes. And it's just like, you know, as quick as a restart and adding credentials. And in many cases, like, you know, like it's so simple that so far it hasn't caused us any issues. At some point, I suspect it might. It's interesting,
0: and I know you're talking about, like, the, the things that can build up in a queue or something, and, like, you know, like, we, I realize that in different technology platform um, stacks, we might be using different language. Like, we've got things we call, like, we have, like, a VCR cassette type thing in the Ruby world where we're, like, if we have an API, we can, like, capture like, a real response and save that. Like, we're always going to run our test against that thing, and if we ever need to go update that hard-coded response, basically it captures, like, the response and we save it, and, we're like, then we can test against that, basically. And then occasionally go check and see if that if that's changing at all. But when it comes to things like processing, like, feeding in more data to the system while you're, at, you know, interacting with the application or the code base, like you mentioned, like, Redis or something like that, like, do you have some patterns where you're able to, like, does that require some manual toggling by someone? Like, okay, i gotta run this thing and that'll introduce some more
1: things into the queue. When it came to like, uh, you know, queuing systems and Redis, like the, we just went like, we, when we were setting up the system, we started off at a point where, you know, there were a couple of developers and like, you know, nothing was developed locally because mainly it was the third-party systems which were not like connectable and a bunch of things needed to be fixed. I, and actually something else that we should get into is like... Um, the HTTP domain certificate side of the world. But one of the things that we ended up doing is like, you know, you can bring up a local SQS or you can bring up a local thing. So we just started bringing up local versions of these things and, you know, they all just run in a Docker container and you can just drop stuff in there. You can like bombard the queue, see how it works. And like, you're not not stress testing the queuing system. You're stress testing your system. So it works pretty well on one container to see if it's doing the right thing.
0: We'll be back with our interview with Rupak in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I want to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers on social media and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts. Do you know someone in the industry that I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, let's get back to our interview with Rupak Venkatakrishnan. So I was also curious, uh, does your engineering team have any metrics that you track to kind of that relate to, say, the health of your software dev-
1: delivery process? So, uh, no, we do not have a formula or something, but this is something that I've been thinking about in terms of like, you know, how um, how quick or how, how good is our software delivery process? Like the metrics that we've been looking at, they're not formalized, but... Um, A while ago, the amount of time it took to get something into production after running all tests and integration tests used to be a couple of hours, and it used to be a lot of painful time. Like when I joined in twenty nineteen, our integration tests were rarely green. Like you would have to like manual check some of them, things like that. Today, it takes about ten minutes to run all unit tests. 20 minutes to run all integration tests and about 20 minutes to build and none of these parts are actually like none of them are like well there are occasional flakes but none of them are is actually consistently flaky which i think is the best thing that we've been able to do in this amount of time so that has actually made you know deploying or developing a lot more simpler when we know that something fails arguably it's either a flaky test or something has gone wrong. And you know, very rarely is a flaky test a thing nowadays. It's like a wrong test. We saw a test just a couple of hours ago where someone was like, oh, you know, the code is wrong. And I was like, you know, we looked at it and it turns out that someone was asserting the items in a queue, I mean, uh, items in a JSON should be exactly what it is. And some items were reordered. So it was very quickly to say, go fix that. That's the only kind of flake that we have now.
0: So those are those little
1: random things that can kind
0: of trip you up after a while. You know, when you talk about, like, flaky builds and stuff, are there other things that have kind of common themes of things you've seen pop up over the years that are, like, these seem to be some pretty common things that developers, like, ah, sort to offer up some advice to people listening to keep an eye for?
1: No. um, Okay, well, I think, like, the, the thing that I've seen both at, uh, you know, I mean, we don't have it at Bolt anymore, but the thing that I did see at Bolt and at some point that we saw at uh, my previous company spoke as well was... Invariably, people run packages of tests. So in Go, Node, whatever, you test package by package. And I've seen in multiple places that if you never re- reorder your packages, you find that one test depends on another, and people don't think about it or people don't realize this. And the way we figured this out and found this out at both, and it was a really hard uh, couple of weeks, is we just turned on always randomize the order of the tests. Those three weeks were hell. Um, People, but you know the engineers and everybody was just like, okay, we've got to fix this out because it's causing other problems. Um, and you know, we managed to actually dive in and um, clean that up. So that's one thing which I've seen happen twice. You know, it, to me, it's like we should never end up there. I think everyone would agree that you know one test should not depend on another. But um, if you're not like sort of actively looking out for it, you don't realize that it could happen. That's interesting.
0: I think that's some, that's that's some good advice there. Randomize your tests, and another thing you had mentioned, you know, you're speaking about dependencies there. What does the
1: process look like? It's a lot easier today for anybody who's using something like GitHub because, you know, Dependabot is going to take care of Golang, Node, Python. So it does so many things. So we definitely have that set up we're able to trust our CI system enough to say that if something passes all tests, it should and can be merged. So those are some of the more easier versions of things. Now, the problems or the things that um, occur are when, you know, they make breaking changes and our CI sort of fails. Then it's like, who's going to pick this up? Who's going to, like, fix it? But, you know, invariably, people pick it up and people fix it. And there are, of course, some of them which are really hard that we never get to. And then there's the other side of the world, which is more like, how often are we going to upgrade the Go version that we're using or the node version that we're using? We've been pretty good about keeping very close to the latest version. So this means that um, in our case, for example, you know, for the Go binary, like Go one sixteen released, like I think maybe two days ago or a day ago. So we're just waiting for a couple of other places to support what we need. And we're going to switch over as soon as possible. Invariably, someone will pick it up and do it. One, because there's a new feature that we need, but we also find that the closer you are to sort of uh, the bleeding edge, the less things that you have to think about. It's only when you suddenly have five versions, six versions, that's when, you know, it's a lot of changes that you have to look through, make sure nothing's going to break for you. Um, so if you're constantly doing it, I think it's sort of, it is a bit of work, but it's sort of going to be easier on you um, in the longer run.
0: I know that in some folks that I've talked to on on the podcast and, one of the things that I've seen, and we've we've worked on a couple of things too here, where there's kind of like a dual booting strategy. I don't know if you've looked into that at all, where you'll let's say you have your main like the thing that's running in production, you have your the versions you're working against, but you can also have like say you're build kind of like what you're doing like with a dependable type of approach, but you can also with new versions of like let's run against the whatever say is the main re- version of that new the new version of the, you know, say go or something like that. And you're like, if you could figure out how to like follow that, what's, what's kind of bleeding edge there and run your CI against that, you can, you'll find out you can have that run consistently and maybe in the background, like once a week or something, just to give you an indication of like, Ooh, there's maybe some syntax changes that are coming. That's going to break some stuff in our system. Maybe that's something we should be aware of now or not. Um, as, something that, So that way you're not necessarily manually needing to go, okay, now who's gonna go take that step to go do that and go test this out? Where I know like a lot of dependencies will do that, but it doesn't always maybe necessarily happen on the, the top level language
1: type thing. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. Definitely something to think about. Uh, actually, now that you mention it, the one thing that we've had it, uh, had a lot of, um, you know, a, a tough time sort of upgrading has always been Webpack, the, uh, the JavaScript bundler. It's gnarly. Um, our Webpack builds are crazy at this point. We do a lot of complicated things. It's not that our code is bad or anything. Our actually, like if I rewrote it, I think I would pretty much end up with roughly the same thing as what we have. The harder part of it is that verifying that your JavaScript bundles like work on every browser, the minification has not broken, the number of computations or like you know permutations and computations of like uh, different assets that we spit out. Um, that's like one of the hard things. And those are the ones where I feel like we're not as close to the bleeding edge. Today, we can't upgrade to the latest version of Webpack because one of our dependencies has a bug, which they haven't fixed. And, you know, they're working on it. But until they do so, we're stuck on this version because half upgrading is uh, also going to be a nightmare for us. <laughs> that, yeah, I can get. Another thing that I wanted to talk with you a little
0: bit about was getting to know about what's this Swiss knife project that you've been working on and could you introduce the audience to it and and kind of outline who it might be useful for people to look into?
1: Yeah, so uh, I I've been working on this uh, Circle CI Orb. Um, so you know we use Circle CI as our CI system, and I've been you know I like I'm a big fan of CI uh, tools, making them like you know more optimal. And as we started using CI at Bolt, I was like, hey, I'm building tiny things that could be helpful for everybody. So. Um, I started, uh, a circle CI orb, which is available at, or, um, you know, orb.swissknife.dev, I think, um, you know, maybe link to that, but, uh, that project basically has a bunch of tools and commands. So for anybody who uses CircleCI, it lets you optimize your workflows and your builds to be a lot more faster. And you can do things that are generally much harder or, you, or, you know, you could not be, you know, do before, um, that's like one thing and then you know i started there and then i started uh building like a ui and a front end behind it um which is still like in in beta but there are some very interesting features that i'm building on top of circle ci right now so I'll, I'll drop uh links to to both of them but uh generally anybody who's interested in ci systems and uses circle ci might be able to benefit from it
0: awesome well definitely yeah i definitely um send those over and i'll include links to that for the audience there I want to quickly circle back to something you mentioned earlier we are talking about local development, and that's around HTtPS and like what did you mean by that? I think when it comes to like certificates and stuff like that like SSL certificates and like how does that apply to a local environment where you're working off a local host or whatever
1: yeah so i I think the the most in- interesting part of local development you know we were talking about like third party dependencies, and that's sort of where I think this comes in right um so we have a bunch of dependencies where not only do we reach out to them, but they have to reach back out to us. And when you're developing software, you need to, like, now there are many tools for it, right? Like, Ngrok was, like, one of the first to come out with it, There's Servio. There's so many other ways you can sort of set it up. But, um, and all of these people are building tools for this. Now SSL certificates are, like, common. A lot of, like, at some point I was building a Slack bot, and Slack, I think, in certain cases, does not even accept HTTP URLs, right? And if you're working with, uh, you know, like, if you're trying to do a Google Auth for a simple service, even they need HTTPS um, in certain cases. And and so that's where, you know, we saw a lot of uh, interesting questions come up. And so, you know, we've recently moved, uh, we use Terraform to generate certs for um, all of our engineers, and you know, it's automatically generated where everybody gets an HTTPS certificate. Um, the ugly thing is that they have to renew it every 90 days. But the good thing is that literally everything, you know, is, like HTTPS is like used on every service that you develop locally, which I think you know, has been very helpful, even in terms of like integration tests and things like that. Like it doesn't matter so much, especially. But it only matters when you get into things like cookies or um, various things like uh, that.
0: So that's so that when they're working, you know, when you're saying Terraform generates that, is that just something that they're, they're able to use in their local environment so that they can run it over SSL? And then when they're kind of doing the piggybacking with those other systems, it'll, it'll acknowledge yeah. it? Yeah.
1: Yeah, so Terraform has like, you know, nice modules that t- uh, ties into uh, to Route 53. And, you know, that sort of works. Actually, you know, when, when we're talking about Terraform, this sort of uh, reminds me of a very interesting project that we're working on right now uh, that I'd love to talk to you about in terms of, like, you know, how maintainable software extends beyond just code and actually also in configuration management. And so one of the things that we're moving uh, or we're doing today is we're, we're moving from an older Kubernetes cluster over to... You know, a a completely new cluster. Um, When we started out, Amazon did not have EKS, um, and it was Cops. So it was a self-managed cluster, and you know, we were moving over to EKS now because there are a lot of advantages. And you know, um, with a smaller engineering team, you don't have to worry about some of the things, and you you know, you can worry about more intricate details or intricate parts of your system, and then pass off some of the management of the Kubernetes data plane or the Kubernetes plane um, to to Amazon, and while we were going about doing this we realized that maintainable software when it comes to infrastructure or configuration is like sort of very different right we came into a place where are you familiar with helm charts no i'm i'm, I'm not personally no so helm charts are basically you know the way you can deploy applications onto um you know kubernetes and they 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 sort they sort of man, uh, you know manage the configuration for it and you know we t- it turns out that in many cases not like you know a chart was modified or updated and it was checked in but the sort of way that you ran um ran the upgrades we did not document like weird things that we found right and so it turned like there were certain things that were done and this is where i go back to the documentation bit right like a lot of things were just manually done some of the things were not in like you know terraform or some of the things were not in the code repo so we're like looking at the code repo and be like this should work exactly as is if we move over to a new version of Kubernetes. Of course, one, the version changed. So a bunch of things have changed because we moved two major versions or actually a couple more than that major versions. But the next part of it was that various things were not like you know documented as to why we did them a certain way in our code base. So now we're going back and then rethinking how we should sort of do this, right? Like someone, like, you know, we set up, uh, like how we set up our VPCs and our networking. We set up something, it looks like the, the configuration is there, but there is no network diagram of why this is set up this way, why this, like why this peering exists. There's a VPC peering to a network where you know someone ends up destroying one of the things there, and then the last person to destroy the last resource left the VPC in place, but the VPC exists for no reason, right? Things like that where, you know, I, I think these are growing pains, and you know, now we've started doing a way better job of documenting it and like, you know, having proper change management steps of like, you know, how we move. From an older, you know, how how we would like if we had to spin this thing up again, how would we do it without any issues? Interesting.
0: Yeah, I can I can imagine how that would be a challenge. Um, it's it's funny because you know I, I'm not as well versed in some of the DevOps stuff these days. Um, some of the stuff is a little bit over my head. So like I actually, honestly don't even being open with the audience, I haven't had time to really wrap my head around what the heck Kubernetes really does and offers. It hasn't been applicable to most of the projects, or it may be very applicable to the projects that I work on. And just because no one like nearby me knows anything about it, we have really dug into it. So I, when I dig into AWS, I feel like I'm lost and I'm clicking around and adjusting things, and things work at some point. And I, someone probably couldn't follow behind me and know exactly all the changes I've made to make it work in the first place. So speaking to that point of that is not a very well... Organized process to make it so that other people can come in and be like, "Oh, this is why it is the way it is." It's just like, "Well, I don't know. I clicked that and it seemed to work for this one problem, but it might have caused a different problem, and I honestly don't have any clue until someone reports that as a problem." So, just sharing my own ignorance there.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, I, I think like that's sort of where I think you might want to look at uh, Terraform. I mean, we're using Terraform. Uh, so Terraform basically, like we we have a policy slash principle that you don't click buttons on the AWS console, you only go there to verify stuff, and Terraform makes all the changes for you. So that means all your configuration is code. Now, this is sort of principle, of course, there are those edge cases where, you know, someone's not able to, like, get the code to work correctly, or Terraform doesn't support the thing that you want to do or actually when we migrated from a non, like, you know, prior to Terraform to a Terraform approach, there are some things that were not brought into Terraform that we just discovered now. And, you know, we've gone about like importing and bring that configuration into code. But um, yeah, I, I think, like there are other tools out there too. I think like one of the newer uh, things in the space is uh, Pulumi. They are also claiming to be, I, I, I haven't used it personally on any projects. I do want to spin up some personal project with it, but they're also pretty interesting.
0: Hi there do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their ruby on rails application planet argon would love to meet them we're offering a $1,000 referral bonus send someone our way and if they sign up for services with planet argon we'll give them a $1,000 discount and in return you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail just for knowing the right person Hop on over to planetargon.com slash referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com slash referrals. Thanks. All right. So I I was hoping to get some advice for the audience. So so maybe there's someone out there listening right now who is a software developer and they have some experience working in kind of the infrastructure side of things. And they might be feeling some pain points with the deployment process or the build process. But maybe there's someone else on the team or there was someone at one point that was in charge of that. And so they're like, well, I don't know. That's really my area. That seems to be so-and-so's responsibility. So I'll just kind of let them deal with that. But maybe they've asked, like, hey, is there any way we can improve like the reliability of our CI build or speed it up? Because maybe it seems to take a long time. But I don't really honestly know that because I don't have a lot to compare to because our every application is different. So when you you mentioned your builds might take 10, 20 minutes, and they're like, well, mine takes an hour. Is that a really long time? I don't know. And I think everybody would be like, well, it depends, or probably that does seem kind of Maybe it's pretty slow to get that feedback cycle. Um, But maybe they've talked to the DevOps person or the person they think is a DevOps person and they've not been able to get around to it. What advice could you offer the audience that's listening to be like to reapproach that conversation to see if they can maybe collaborate on improving the situation so that they're not just hoping that someone else will take care of it for them?
1: Yeah, I I mean, this is a sort of an interesting problem. And that's sort of why, um, you know, like we face this problem at Bolt, it's very interesting that you ask, where there was this sort of like, divide, right? Like, you know, where an application developer thinks that something could be better. And then they ask, hey, can you improve this? Now, the person on the other side, it's like, improve what, right? Like, you uh, unless like, there's a sort of divide where sometimes, um, it's not, I'm not saying this is always the case, at least it was in our case, and you know, we're working very hard to fix this, and I think we have to a, very, to a very good extent, but there's just like, we need to do X. You just say we need to do X and don't, don't talk about what your actual requirements are, and they don't understand what your system is doing. So they're operating with your application as sort of a black box, and you are operating, uh, like, or the infrastructure side is operating with the application as a black box, and the, inf- the application person is asking, the infrastructure person to do something, assuming that they understand the application side. And I think bridging this gap is sort of like very important in order to get the sort of the best build systems, the best deploy systems. You want someone who understands. You don't have to understand like everything super deep, but you should be able to have enough of an understanding where you're not just asking like, you know, hey, fix this for me, but be like, this is like, you know, understand what the CI system is trying to do. And then, you know, you're actually, you, you can poke around a bit and then, then when you come back, you, like when the other person says some words, you're not gonna be confused, right? That's what we sort, sort of happened in the past, right? Like I want X, but not defining what X is and the other person not understanding how your system works, sort of treating both sides as a black box just like is not gonna work sort of for an integration. Someone really needs to understand enough of both sides to be able to ask for the right things and help the other person um, go one way or the other. At least that's um, that's what I've noticed. So maybe like a
0: like a, a tangible example might be let's say our integration tests seem to be taking. They seem like they take a while to respond, or they might be feeling. They might it might seemingly feel flaky, or it seems like it actually maybe even like let's say those actually run faster on my own laptop than they do out on Circle CI. That seems maybe something's off, right? What is it about that? And so maybe having conversation with that other person that's in the infrastructure about like, can we walk through and just kind of go through the build process
1: a little bit to see like, where is this slowing down or? Yeah, I think like the conversation would like at least you know, the way we are trying to do it right now is like we're trying to educate people on how the CI system works. Right. And then like once you have a high level understanding of how the CI system works, like you know, like I actually like like I mentioned earlier, I gave a talk on how CI works and the various concepts and why we do certain things. So at this point, like a good amount of the engineering team knows what CI does, maybe not in depth, but how we designed our workflows, how we did certain things and, you know, why we made these decisions. So now, the next time when someone says, hey, you know, this thing could be faster, they understand what caching is happening. They understand what we're trying to do. So we can then walk through and then be like, hey, this is sort of what you tried. And this is sort of what we're seeing. And this is why it's faster on your laptop. So integration tests are uh, actually a common example. Um, When we started out, they used to take an hour and a half to two hours. We've brought it down to 20 minutes. And this is not just by, like, it's not like we doubled resources or anything like that. It's like the same number of, like the same amount of resources, but then using them in a smart way. And this was like digging into the application, finding out what are the things that we can parallelize? What are the things that are cause uh, like taking uh, a bunch of time? And invariably, it has to be, I, I think, a collaboration between the people who are actually building the application and people on the infrastructure or dev, developer productivity side of things. Nice. So a couple of quick last questions for you. One, is uh, Bolt hiring at the moment? Yeah, Bolt is... Uh, hiring a lot uh, we're looking for back-end engineers front-end engineers sres i'm also hiring on my team which is the platforms and infrastructure team so mobile engineers i forgot to mention that so um if anyone uh listening is uh looking out for a job like uh feel free to reach out or if you want to try something different or, or want to like join like want to look at the payments industry or the fintech world definitely reach out
0: excellent i'll definitely include a link to the careers
1: p- Page and and the
0: show notes for everybody. And so where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development, DevOps, infrastructure online?
1: Yeah, uh, so I'm on Twitter. Uh, Actually, I'm on Twitter, GitHub, LinkedIn, all of them the same handle. It's RupakV, R-O-O-P-A-K-V. I'm usually tweeting a lot of random things. So uh, you will find me when I'm frustrated with certain tools yelling, or sometimes when I'm very happy with certain tools, I will be, you know, posting a bunch of gifts. So, Excellent. Well, it's been such a delight having you on
0: about Rupak. Thank you so much for joining and talking shop.
1: Thank you. It was great coming and chatting with you too.